Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. My guest in this episode of the Sustainable Finance Podcast is Karthik Balakrishnan, co-founder and president of Actual, which has been featured in Fast Company, Forbes, and Business Insider, among many other publications, for its sustainability transformation platform a single place for firms to collaboratively study impact, minimize risk, and maximize return on investment while meeting strategic priorities. Karthik will join me in a moment, but first I want to say a few words about our sponsor. If you're tuning in to this podcast, you already understand the crucial role finance plays in the transition to a sustainable future. With the right individuals leading the way in top companies, sustainability becomes more than just a buzzword. That's why we're excited to have Acre as our sponsor. As a world-leading sustainability search and recruitment company, Acre enables organizations to create real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in their teams. Visit the Acre website to learn more about their latest opportunities or to get in touch about building your perfect team. Hello, Karthik, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Hi, Paul. Thank you for having me this morning. We're glad that you've joined us, and we're going to jump right into the questions that we have. You have raised the concern in our previous conversations in prep so far that sustainable business planning to date is missing the forest for the carbon by not considering the broader nature of sustainability and climate change like water and land use, for example, as well as the financial and operational concerns of companies. Please expand on this focus for our followers. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. You know, sustainability is, you know, really critical for a lot of businesses. It's something that a lot of businesses have pledged, um, whether it's net zero commitments, whether it's uh, putting money into both investments as well as operations. But one of the things, right, we, we talk about climate change a lot, and climate change is certainly, you know, the biggest generational test that we have today. But climate change is much more than just carbon, right? There's other greenhouse gases. Um, but the environment is a very complex system, right? It's not just about carbon. You have water, you have land use, you have chemicals. If you start to think about adaptation to climate change, you start to have second and third order kind of changes as well. For example, if you have droughts, and you start to build power plants to desalinate water. You can have issues around, um, you know, increased salinity of um, the area near where the desalination plant is operating, right? So you have all of these impacts that all go hand in hand. So this, there's been a really interesting mindset the last couple of years, really on let's look at carbon, right? Let's just measure the carbon. Maybe we offset it. Maybe we try to cut it. But everything is about the carbon, and that's a very interesting and a really kind of understandable approach because emitting too much CO2 is why we're in this uh, mess in the first place. But the solutions, quite frankly, are a lot more complex than that. And even if we had built our transportation networks, our energy systems, all of these things in a low or zero carbon way, the other impacts of the things that we do would still exist. Um, and we'd be sitting talking about, well, how do we you know, mitigate this impact or that impact. Um, so fundamentally, 
I think that when we when I say that a lot of planning is missing the forest for the carbon, it's not about a single number about how much carbon are you emitting and how do you deal with that number. It's about a much more holistic view of what is the impact that our business, our operations, our products are having on the environment as a whole. What do we do about that? Um, and are there maybe advantages, right? People think about sustainability as a cost. Well, it turns out that if you can reduce your material inputs, if you can reduce waste and scrappage, if you can make things in a more efficient manner, um, if you can use less energy, those are all cost savings as well. So instead of focusing on a single number, right, which is what is our carbon intensity, what is our carbon number, that's important. That's why we're in this challenge in the first place. But looking a lot more holistically and recognizing that carbon is one piece of the impact that your business and operations are having, that's really critical to do. Okay. So now, uh, please explain to us, Karthik, how you're using the actual platform to connect industries that work together and getting and, and your focus is to get everyone on the same page, right? That's the same screen, true. I guess, is the, <laughs> the better way yeah. to put it today. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think um, we live in, a, in an extremely interconnected world. And this world is interconnected, not just in our local communities, but globally as well. And so if you think about, you know, I mean, just think about the couch that's behind me, right? It seems very simple. It's just kind of a gray set of rectangles that are, that are, that are held together. But if you look at what it's made of, there's cotton, there's linen, there's rubber, there's various kinds of metal, steel and aluminum, and there's wood. There's, you know, other material that I just don't know off the top of my head, right? Like there's a lot of products that go into it. And if you think about where each of those materials are produced, they're produced in different countries, on different continents. Some of them are produced in ways that are probably very sustainable, and others almost certainly were produced in a way that is incredibly unsustainable. Um, and if I knew about it, maybe wouldn't have bought this particular couch, or maybe I would have, right? But the simple fact is that for the manufacturer of the couch, they have to start sourcing the raw materials from somewhere. They have to start sourcing the legs, the frame, the the cloth that goes over it. And then if you think about that supplier, right, the person who's supplying the cloth, they're buying the raw materials, they're buying the thread that they can weave, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, the impacts that that couch, the production of that couch has on the environment is not the focus of a single company. It's the focus of many companies, many organizations, and many different industries, really that across the globe. And this is true, not just for a simple couch, but really for any kind of a product, whether it's a consumer product, whether it is um, something that a business is buying, whether it is something much larger as well. So what we realized when we started to build Actual is that for most companies, they had a fairly good handle on how to become sustainable within their own four walls. Um, you know, they can walk around a business and kind of get a sense for, well, these are things that we can do that are going to move the lever. But it turns out that as you start to go through a supply chain, and especially as you go toward the ends of the supply chain, those particular suppliers are really far away from capital. So a consumer-facing brand can make a net zero commitment, but the farm that is three or four or five levels away may not have the access to the investors to invest in or to, to, to require the you know, whether it's things like electric tractors or, you know, more expensive um, fertilizer or what have you that is necessary to meet the commitments the brand is making. 
So we realized that actual is really valuable for um, would be to give the people really at the ends of the supply chain, the ones making the commitments and the ones who need the capital to drive the investments in their facilities, a way to look at the same plan and to understand, okay, this is why I'm looking for this capital. This is what I'm looking to invest in and to be able to do that in a holistic way so that the couch manufacturer can look and they can see all their suppliers in one place and not just see, but communicate to those specific suppliers. Here's what we'd like you to do. Let's have a conversation about transformation so that when I get the legs for the couch, that's done in a sustainable way. What is it going to cost? And how do I help you get that money um, to make that happen? Now, ultimately, all of this rolls up to the investor, right? And the investment funds that are that are being put together in our industry, at least. And you also believe that ESG integration and sustainable investment funds have seen billions in outflows in 2023 because of their focus on the way ESG ratings have been created and interpreted. Why has that focus, from your perspective, been wrong? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that ESG certainly had huge record inflows in 2020, 2021, 2022. 2023 has seen outflows. What's interesting, of course, is that fund across the board, um, whether it's sustainability linked, whether it's VC or PE, et cetera, have seen challenges as well. You know, as interest rates go up, it's maybe, you know, you can find places with less risk. Um, but what's really quite interesting more broadly is that the earliest ESG funds we're very focused on understanding risk at a down to the investment level, right? The whole purpose behind ESG was around not just ESG, but ESG risk. So if I have a business, what are the risks to that business as a result of, you know, both the environment's impact on the business and the business's impact on the environment, right? If you have an oil spill, that's going to cost money. If the enforcement is higher, that's a risk. Similarly, if there's flooding and all the factories are next to the ocean, that's a risk. So there's an environmental risk. There's a social risk in terms of license to operate, in terms of human rights, in terms of wages and, and, and pay and all these kinds of things. And of course, governance, right? A poorly governed company probably has no good, you know, no future. Um, some, you know, you're one wrong decision away from, from everything careening off of a cliff. And so ESG really started as a, you know, let's holistically understand all of the risks for this company, not just near-term immediate financial risk that you look from a balance sheet, but let's look at the company's strategy. Now, as we started to see these record inflows, people started to think, well, how do we operationalize the process of understanding that risk? So then you suddenly turned into seeing, um, or we got into a situation where, you know, here's an ESG checklist. Here's 150 metrics and pick the ones that are important to you. And maybe you have some low-scoring ones and you have some high-scoring ones and they're totally different but they kind of cancel each other out. And we went from a holistic understanding of risks into very much a check the box so that you can say that you're ESG, which is how we ended up with you know, coal companies, tobacco companies, et cetera, having high ESG scores. And we ended up with companies that were making you know, electric cars or producing green hydrogen, potentially having lower scores because of sort of the, um, the way that the metrics were implemented led to kind of a fungibility across these things. But the reality is you cannot balance carbon with human rights. There are two different things. Um, and you can do good in one area and do really poorly in another. And you have to recognize that that's not one number that you can balance. It's 
a multitude of indicators that you have to look at each risk independently. So what we're really seeing now is that the ESG funds, especially those that have focused on just like trying to assign one number and say, this company is a seven, this company is an eight, this company is a six, those funds are having trouble because people are starting to realize that, wait a minute, ESG is a lot more holistic. Um, and it's not just about the number, but it's, it's understanding the specific risks of that company, of that industry, and what's going to happen about it. What's really quite interesting, though, is the investments into sustainability and what we would have looked at sort of what ESG started as, that really hasn't diminished all that much. That's tracking kind of the broader investment trends of the market. Um, so I think what we'll see is continued and actually expanding investment into um, environmentally conscious uh, companies that are you know thinking about their social footprint and that are well governed, but the ESG funds that are basically just using a you know check the box view towards um, what goes into that fund, I think they're going to have quite a bit of trouble. Yes, and of course, another thing that we're experiencing uh, on, in multiple locations around the world uh, that's a risk for, for all of these companies throughout supply chains is military conflict. And that's something that doesn't get factored in some funds. They probably don't even have a box to check around that. So I, I completely agree with you that we need to be more holistic in this approach. Uh, for, fortunately, and maybe unfortunately, I've been in the industry, this part of the industry long enough to know what that that process was like back uh, in 2002 to begin with. So uh, how can companies that use the actual platform explore the real-world problems of sustainable capital planning beyond data collection and reporting? Some of the other things, for example, that you've mentioned and we've been talking about. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we've found is that data collection and reporting about, you know, your sustainability position, your impact on emissions, these kind of things, they're important, but they're really a point in time measurement of where we are today. And one of the big challenges that we've seen for most companies is that they have a pretty good handle on where they're at. It's really a question of what does transformation look like in order to not have those impacts. So if you think about, you know, a large multinational shipping company, um, and they've got planes and trucks and warehouses. Where are their emissions coming from? They have plenty of data. It's coming from the fact that they're buying a bunch of diesel and jet fuel, and they're burning it in order to move those planes and trucks. No amount of data collection, no amount of reporting is going to change the fact that they've got a huge fleet of diesel trucks and jet fuel powered airplanes. So our focus has been on what do you do about it? Recognizing that in many cases, the assets that you have and the operations that you have are going to have to transform into something that may look very different in order to hit those sustainability goals. So reporting and accounting, there's a lot of work that, you know, um, that IFRS, TCFD, SASB, there's a lot of different groups working on, you know, what does accounting and reporting look like? But that's very much a where are we today? Our focus is on how do we help the decision makers and how do we help their experts come together and actually look at the trade-offs of the investment options that they have in front of them. So if you have that fleet of diesel trucks, there's going to be certain places where hydrogen might make sense. There's going to be certain places where maybe you should be shifting from trucks to rail. There may be other places where it's really a matter of getting the goods on the ships closer 
to the target market. So maybe instead of using one port, maybe using two or three ports. There's a lot of these kind of operational changes. Then you start to get into this, well, diesel trucks operate quite differently from electric trucks. You need to put chargers. You have to start thinking about investments in maintenance facilities. You have to start thinking about the fact that you may have a lot of spares today. Then there are the, you can't just snap your fingers overnight and your entire truck is, is switched over, your entire fleet is switched over. Um, it's going to take 10, 15, 20 years for that fleet over time to be transitioned. Do you do a regional approach? Or do you, you know, where maybe we start in the West because that's where a lot of electrification is happening? Or do you do a size-based approach where maybe we start by electrifying the delivery trucks and then over time we go to the longer haul trucks? These are all the kind of questions that data won't answer because there is no data about this. That transformation hasn't been done. And so the real question is, how do you actually grapple with these questions and provide a way for an executive decision maker to say, you know what, what happens if I push out the class A truck electrification by five years? What happens if I decide that local delivery trucks, we use e-bikes? You know, there's, I mean, UPS is trying some of these interesting cargo e-bikes. There's a lot of companies trying to do similar things. What if we tried that, right? Um, and that's really been our focus is on the, okay, I know what my problem is. I've done you know, miss missing the forest for the carbon, but I've I've done the carbon accounting. I know where the problems are. So what? What is it going to cost me? How do I deal with this? Um, and then back to your earlier question, um, a lot of these challenges are not just yours. If you have these trucks, your truck stop um, are going to have to adapt as well. You probably don't own those truck stops. Those are partnerships. You signed a fuel purchase agreement. How do you think about that? How do you invest in those truck stop operators to help them electrify so that your trucks can come and charge? That's really the focus that that we've um, that we built actual with. And of course, as you mentioned before, things like inflation and the cost of capital uh, are other processes and other focuses within the world of finance that need to be be brought to bear on any uh, process like this of development over time. So, how does actual apply? A user's models, uh, now a company that, that has come to you and said, all right, Karthik, let's do this process. We've got these models we've been operating by. How are you using their models in an asset type and location aware way? And how can users be assured that you're doing this accurately? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question. One of our key tenets here is that we think that transparency and openness are key to this kind of a transformation. Um, there's a lot of work that's been done in terms of, you know, here's our plan, um, but a lot of the processes for coming up with that plan tend to be kind of in a black box, right? So here's the inputs and here's the plan and we're going to go with it. Our approach, in fact, is that the science, the assumptions, the data, everything that goes into the plan need to be open and inspectable. Now, that doesn't mean that a company's strategic plan is open to everyone on the internet. But what it means is that a company can open up the inputs and the science behind their strategic plan to all the relevant stakeholders who can then come in and actually trace from end to end, how is this calculation happening? So when you ask a question, well, why did you pick, let's say, hydrogen aircraft over sustainable aviation fuels for that fleet um, decarbonization? Well, here's why. That's one piece of it, right? Is that the basic science and the data inputs and everything is traceable in a very visual way. So that whether you are a scientist or an engineer or not, 
you can still understand. One of the biggest challenges that we've seen in sustainability transformation is that it's multidisciplinary. So someone could be an electrical engineer, so they might really understand, let's say, the industrial and commercial decarbonization part. But another part of the supply chain, because it's agricultural, they may not have the technical background to do that modeling, but they may still have to understand that. And similarly, someone who is an expert in agriculture might understand the sequestrate, the soil sequestration and the regenerative ag and some of the farm stuff, but they may not necessarily understand the warehouse things. So that's one piece of this is providing the transparency of the science in a very easy to see and understand visual way. Once those models exist, they're actually then run. Um, for most of these organizations, they operate across geographies in many countries. We have country, you know, we have uh, customers that are using our models in over 40 countries with millions of sites. Um, we have customers that are using them across millions of acres of farmland. And one of the things, right, that you realize about the real world is that every location is different in terms of the local needs, in terms of financeability, in terms of the soil chemistry, in terms of precipitation, all the things that go into the science vary place by place by place. There is no silver bullet that we can be sustainable by doing this one thing. So what we've really built actual do is to, is to take that science and, to, and then apply it at scale across all of the different parts of the operation so that the experts and the decision makers can come in and say, for this particular farm that is supplying the cotton for this couch, these are the particular things that we can do that will make this farm sustainable. For this warehouse that is receiving the couch cushion, right? These are the things that we can do. For this airport where we're having a lot of the, the legs coming in and out of, these are the things that we can do. So recognizing that in this complex supply chain, you have a lot of very different kinds of assets in a lot of different kinds of places. Our platform is architected to take those models that are open and inspectable by the relevant stakeholders, apply them, and then let the decision makers actually interact on a site-by-site -site level to get that intuition and say, you know what, this makes sense so that we can actually go and uh, make that investment. So the location-specific part of this whole process, I'm starting to realize is a lot more complicated and involved than uh, the average investor might perceive it to be. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that this is an important part of your work on the front end of building a relationship with a new company, because uh, part, one of the things they have to understand is that you might be asking 15 different questions about the same kind of product that's produced and manufactured uh, in different locations around the world. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, we always start narrow um, because these organizations are so complex mm -hmm. that coming in and saying, well, let's help you transform everything today. It's it's just too much for any person. <laughs> um, and and part of this, you know, is that transformation is new for most companies. You know, they they built something and it worked and they scaled it and they kind of just keep operating and um, they build new products and what have you. But there's a muscle around we've done things a certain way. It works well. So let's keep doing that thing. Sustainability transformation is really difficult because, you know, transformation by itself is tough. We saw that with digital transformation. But sustainability transformation is a whole of economy problem that every company is facing and they're going to have to deal with in the next 10 to 15 years. And so 
building up that organizational muscle for transformation is part of our process, right? It's helping them understand, um, you know, here's how we think about sustainability. Here's how we can make capital allocation decisions to get there. Here's how we can make operational decisions to get there. And that always starts by looking at, let's look at one piece of your company so that we can build that muscle there, right? It's the equivalent of, um, you know, before running a marathon, you know, maybe you should take a run around the block. Um, and then you go longer and longer and eventually you can run the marathon. Well, that's the approach that we take as well. Let's let's start with one thing, because at that point, because the customers can build their models and bring them, they also get confident and build up the internal capability um, not to need our help beyond here's the software and you are not yourself. Got it. All right. Well, Karthik, this is fascinating stuff. I'm sure we're going to want to have other conversations with you in the future. Uh, but for today, tell us where online can our listeners learn more about Actual and how can followers of the Sustainable Finance Podcast contact you with questions about the topics that we've discussed in today's episode? Absolutely. So our website is actualhq.com, A-C-T-U-A-L-H-Q.com. And you can contact me either over email, just the letter K at actualhq.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Okay, terrific. Well, thank you, Karthik Balakrishnan. And for our listeners, if you're ready to take your team to the next level, or if you're an experienced sustainability professional, visit the Acre website to get in touch. With the right individuals leading the way in your company, sustainability becomes more than a buzzword. But Acre enable real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in your teams. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. 